I want to read to you from Acts chapter 1. And we'll just read the first eight verses of Acts chapter 1. It's, it's, the book of Acts is fabulous. I was at a weekend, uh, was it last weekend, with uh, some young folk from the church here, up in Scotland, and, and we, we had a whistle-stop th- tour through the book of Acts. It's the most dynamic, exciting, thrilling book you could ever read. It's, it's, it's astonishing stuff. The speed, the pace of this book, as the church literally exploded. And by the way, this isn't just ancient history. The church is still exploding. I was telling a friend of mine just this past week that Ethiopia, where I grew up as a child, we lived in an almost entirely Islamic community in northern Ethiopia. And Ethiopia that I grew up in as a young child was one of the great mission priorities today. There are more than 25 and a half million evangelicals in Ethiopia. That's more than the whole of Europe, by the way. There's only 18 million in Europe. 25 million evangelicals in Ethiopia, and a new church is getting planted about every two to three days. It's exploding. And a church of this size in Ethiopia would be considered to be a small church. It might not even qualify as a church because with some denominations there, if you only have, let's say, 60 or 70 people, they call it a preaching point because it's too small to be a proper church. It's not self-sustaining. The gospel is exploding. Uh, Not so much in Europe, but it is around the world. So the book of Acts is still alive today, uh, as we can see the church exploding all all over the the world. Verse 1 of Acts, chapter 1. In my first book, this is Luke writing, I told you, Theophilus, about everything that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And then he talked to them about the kingdom of God. And once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he has promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water. But in just a few days' time, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom? And Jesus replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know, but you will receive power. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. That's all I want to read. The book of Acts, as I've already said, is this thrilling, fast-paced book about the explosion of the early church. Uh, An explosion is the best term to use because it began with a handful of people. When, uh, when Pentecost happens in Acts 2, and generally we, we, we begin our serious study of the book of Acts in chapter 2, because that's when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and they go out to, to, to preach in the crowded streets. When the Holy Spirit came, there were only about just over 100 of them. Now, by the end of the day, there were 3,000, but at that first, first moment, just about 100 people there. And... Uh, 
Just before it happens, <clears throat> Jesus spends time after his death and resurrection meeting up with his apostles and whatever other followers he had. And it's interesting the way Luke describes it here. Luke was a thinker, one of the most brilliant, um, thoughtful, intelligent historians of, of, of the early church. Uh, and he tells us in these early verses that Jesus, during that 40-day period from his resurrection to him finally ascending to the Father, he met with his apostles again and again and again. And you read about those uh, um, meetings, both at the end of the, uh, all the Gospels, but also in 1 Corinthians, where Paul describes all the different meetings that Jesus had. And it was to show them beyond all doubt that he had definitely risen from the dead. Why did he need to convince them? Well, resurrection doesn't generally happen. I mean, we as Christians tell our secular friends that we believe in a raised Jesus Christ, and they look at you as if, as if you're mad because resurrection doesn't generally happen. Of course you need evidence. Being a Christian isn't about throwing rationality out the window. It's about following the evidence. And over that month and a quarter period, Jesus appeared to people again and again and again, not just believers, by the way, but unbelievers, including his own brother, James, who didn't really believe in Jesus at all until he saw the resurrected Jesus. And then he not only believed, but became a committed follower of Jesus. By the end of this period, these guys were utterly convinced, utterly convinced that wasn't an illusion, that wasn't a mirage. The sheer physicality of these experiences of Jesus, eating with him, hugging him, talking to him, laughing with him, uh, not just once, but repeated, repeated uh, visitations, they knew he's alive, absolutely alive. And that changes everything because if Jesus has conquered death, then we can all live without fear of death because we can have forgiveness and eternal life because that's what Jesus gives us. They were utterly convinced. Peter later on when he writes <clears throat> his own books um, says, we have not followed cunningly devised tall tales or fables. That's not the kind of faith we have. We have a faith that's based on absolute evidence. We are rational people who are following the evidence and the evidence leads to the truth that Jesus Christ is alive again and that changes everything. So don't let anyone tell you that there's no evidence for the, the, the Christian faith. The evidence is overwhelming uh, to a point where you have to be irrational not to accept this stuff because the evidence is all there. If you believe in evidence, if you believe in rationality, you have to believe in this stuff. Now, uh, no doubt these folk were desperate to get back home. Most of Jesus' followers were Galileans. Galilee was a wee bit up north, a couple of uh, days, three days, maybe walk up north. Um, they had been in Jerusalem for quite a long time. They came with Jesus for um, his triumphal entry. Then they were horrified at his arrest and trial and, and, and then crucifixion. <coughs> then when, when they saw him being buried in that tomb, they thought, Life's all over. And then the resurrection happened. And what good news. I can't wait to get back to my wife, if it's Peter. Can't I wait to get back to the message and tell her all about what's happened to Jesus. He's alive. He's been raised from the dead. But Jesus said, look, hang on a second. Don't be in such a hurry. I'm planning something really big here. So while you're excited to get back to Galilee and tell everybody in the village all the exciting stuff that's happened, just wait here because God has something for you. 
That's the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know what these monotheistic Jews made of that. I mean, they'd heard Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit before, but they weren't really sure exactly who or what the Holy Spirit is. And uh, the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, and you can read Acts 2 at your leisure some other time. Um, but, but they're waiting with a sense of expectation. But if that wasn't exciting enough, if that was intense enough, the Holy Spirit will come and everything will be different. What Jesus says next in verse 8 that we've just read together was absolutely life transformative. It, it's almost like a purpose statement for all Christians right across the Spirit. I don't know if you've ever really processed that, but that simply means that God's power resides within you, and God has gifted you to serve Him, and you can serve Him with power. That's what Jesus said, with power. So you are a powerful person, not because of you, but because the Holy Spirit lives within you, and if you surrender to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to work through you, you've got real power. But what's this power for? Well, said so Jesus in verse 8, you'll be my witnesses. Um, you will tell people about me. You'll, you'll tell people what you know about me. Just like a, a, a witness goes to a court of law uh, and they'll say, um, when, when questioned by uh, either the defense lawyer or the prosecuting lawyer, what did you see? Or what do you know? And they just express what they do know. If you're a Christian, a genuine believer, a genuine follower of Jesus, uh, you already have the knowledge that can transform our world. Because for the billions of people who don't know Christ, what you've experienced, that will change, that will transform them. Now, you might not be a a brilliant theologian. Uh, You might be even fairly young or rudimentary in your faith. But if you're a genuine believer, you'll know that that you've sinned, Jesus forgave you, and now you've got life. That can change the world. Because the world needs to know that everyone is born sinful, but Jesus died on the cross so they could be forgiven and can give them eternal life. That can transform every country across the world transform people. And God changes things not by political machinations. The church in the Middle Ages learned that that was a mistake. God changes the world by individuals, one person at a time, changing and being transformed. And it can happen. I've got a friend of mine who currently lives in Bethlehem. He grew up as a Palestinian. He's now a Christian. And he is painfully aware of the horrors that are taking place ever since uh, that initial Hamas attack. Now, I come from Northern Ireland. We know a lot about terrorism and the brokenness and the hurt and the pain that it causes. And as a Palestinian who became a Christian is now a follower of Jesus, he reaches out to all communities and says, you can be transformed. You can be changed. You can learn to love each other and care for each other. But it starts at the cross. Jesus can bring reconciliation. 
to the deepest brokenness possible. And he's confident just now. He's confident that that whole situation can be changed through Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing. But we've seen it across the world in, in so many different situations. And you know that to be true because you're a Christian, if you're a Christian. You know that to be true. And what Christ asks of you is that you'll be his witness. That you'll just share with people that good news that you've personally experienced. Now, when I talk to folk about this kind of stuff, lots of folks say to me, well, I, I don't know if that really applies to me because I, I'm not really an evangelist. I don't have the gift of evangelism, so it's, it's, it's not really for me. Well, neither were lots of these people. We assume that every Christian in the book of Acts was a, a gifted evangelist. No, they weren't. The majority probably weren't. And yes, God did equip some, like the Apostle Paul, for example, to be gifted evangelists, but most of us aren't. But that's not what Christ is asking us to do. He's asking us simply to be his witnesses. And as we are simply open and sharing and witnessing for Jesus and telling our neighbors and our friends and other people that we know about what Jesus has done in our lives. So God does the rest. And yes, there are some people who are particularly gifted in evangelism. I remember going to, to, to um, the Billy Graham crusade in 1991. I've been working for Glow for about one year at that stage. And, and Billy Graham came to Celtic Park. And, and my heart almost stopped beating when Billy preached his first sermon. And, and by the way, that, that very first night in Glasgow was the top attendance of the season uh, at Celtic Park. They weren't doing very well at that time. Um, and the stadium was packed out. And I thought he preached reasonably well. Uh, nothing special. And then he just said, if anybody wants to come and trust Jesus, just come to the front here. And I thought, well, nobody's going to move. These are, these are Scots. The Scots are a, a hard-nosed bunch. Sorry if there's any Scots in the room here. Uh, they're a hard-nosed bunch. Nothing's going to happen. And for the next two or three minutes, the loudest noise you could hear is these tip-up seats smacking against their backs as all across the stadium folk got to their feet and came running down to trust Christ. And I had taken some friends of mine there. And uh, one of them was, I was in the choir up to my right. I could, I could see her up there. And I thought, she'll never become a Christian. She'll never. She's had such a tough life from such a broken family. It's so difficult. How could? And I saw her get up and walk down and trust in Christ. And two of her daughters have been missionaries of the glow. God transformed that whole family in a most remarkable way. It happens. There are those evangelists. But, but Jesus says to us, just, just, just be my witnesses. And if you look through the next few chapters of the book of Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, it was astonishing to see these ordinary Christians in the face of real persecution because they were getting arrested and imprisoned and, and harangued by the religious authorities in Jerusalem by just going out and sharing the good news of Jesus. Just witnessing for him. Just ordinary people. Most of them weren't even literate. Again, because they were from Galilee. It was the most primitive backward part of the country. Most of them had never been to school. Just very ordinary, ordinary people. And here they were in the big city, feeling daunted by all that, but just, just witnessing and telling people about what Jesus had done in their lives. And the whole city of Jerusalem was being 
transformed to the point where the authorities began to panic and the persecution got severe because they were really worried that these Christians were overtaking uh, the, the, the whole city. So they threatened them and cajoled them. Made no difference. They kept being witnesses. And more and more folk kept on becoming Christians. And we come to a climax in Acts chapter 7 where a young man called Stephen, who's in the next generation of, 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 of church leaders, is brutally, brutally publicly executed. And they're brokenhearted. Things have gone too far now. It's not just a matter of being thrown in jail for the night for being witnesses for Jesus now. Um, we're actually uh, uh, be, being killed. And the apostle said to all the believers, look, um, you've you got to leave. We could be facing extermination. We could be facing ethnic cleansing. They are determined to absolutely root us out. So we'll stay here to hold the fort. And all of you need to run for your lives. And so within just a, this is just a few weeks passing, you've got all these very ordinary Christians. Most of them, as I've already said, are uneducated, parochial backward, fleeing for their very lives. But everywhere they went, they were talking about Jesus, just being witnesses. Look what Jesus goes on to say. Not only will you be my witnesses telling everybody you come across about what Christ has done in your life, what I've done in your life, but, but here's where I want to send you. Well, in Jerusalem, that, that's where you are. That's what they did. They could only do so for a few weeks until the death of Stephen. And then they had to leave. They had to leave. But go to Judea, widen the circle, cover this whole area, tell everybody in this whole area about me. And then a bit further, Samaria. That was an awkward one. If you've ever read the Gospels, you'll know that most Jews utterly despised Samaritans. In fact, if you're a Galilean and you're coming down to a feast day in Jerusalem, uh, you, you, you normally would pass through Samaria, but they so despised the, Samar the Samaritans that they'd take a long walk to avoid that territory, which would mean their journey would be twice as long. You'd use twice the petrol in your car to avoid that area. And it's because they despised these people so much, they wouldn't even want to set foot in a village where you had Samaritans living. That was well beyond their comfort zone. And Jesus said, you'll go there and be my witnesses. Oh, Jesus, surely not. I mean, we've lived all our lives with having this prejudice towards Samaritans. Of course, that begs the question, doesn't it? What are the communities that would be beyond your comfort zone just now to be a witness? I've got a friend of mine, and um, tell you what he does. <clears throat> he goes along to, in his case, pride marches to hug people and tell them Jesus loves them. Now, you can just imagine how hostile a crowd like that might be for a Christian but he feels this longing just to love those people and to express the love of Jesus. So he literally goes there to hug people and to tell them that they're loved. I've got another friend of mine and um, 
in Glasgow, we got a, a, an area in the very center of Glasgow, which is the largest collection of, of, of Muslims in the whole of Glasgow, actually the whole of Scotland. It, it's um, an area that's almost a subculture in and of itself. And he moved house just to live there. Wasn't sure exactly what he would do, but he knew that um, that community, which lots of Scots were struggling to, to deal with, Jesus loves them. So he moved house to live right in the middle of the largest Islamic community in the whole of Scotland. Got another friend of mine, and he um, goes along to uh, psychic fairs or a place like Glastonbury and walks into occult bookshops and says, I got some Bibles here to sell. Would you like to sell my Bibles? Because it's all about spirituality. Now, and he talks to people who are Druids. He talks to people who are Satanists. He talks to people who are witches. And he shares with them the love of Jesus. See, when you're being a witness, there are no areas that should be beyond our reach or beyond our comfort. For these folks, Samaria was like that. They had been told by their parents, never darken the doors of a, Sim of, of, of a, a Samaritan home. Never go there. But Jesus told them to. So they did. And then to the very ends of the earth. Now, what does that mean to, to a Galilean? Um, the ends of the earth. Uh, for, for most of these Galileans, the, the furthest they have ever been from their home in their entire lives was Jerusalem. Now, these days, you can drive modern transport, motorways. You can drive from Galilee to Jerusalem in a few hours. It doesn't take long at all. In their entire lives, that's the furthest they'd ever traveled. The vast bulk of them would never have heard a foreign language being spoken. Now, no chance of learning any foreign languages. They came from such a parochial community to the ends of the earth. Many of them had never heard of Europe. They would have had no knowledge of the existence of Africa, where I grew up. Completely parochial. And yet you're to be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. Now, no one person can do all of that. It's just impossible. It is impossible. But Jesus wasn't asking this of just one or two of his followers. He's asking this of his church, of his followers as a whole. That we as the whole collective of people who follow Jesus, who love him, we are to personally take on the burden of all of that, the whole world. Now, God has gifted us in different ways, and so the roles that we might play may be very, very different. But, but can I say, if you're to be a true follower of Jesus, you need to be burdened about the very ends of the earth. Places like Afghanistan, China, or Papua New Guinea, or South Africa, or Suriname, or Tonga. Now, you might never go to those places, but you should be burdened because to us as people who claim to follow Jesus, he's given us that responsibility that we are to be as witnesses 
across the world. And yes, he's gifted us in different ways. But there are all kinds of ways in which we can use our gifts for his glory. In some cases, um, your gift may well be just praying. Now, when I say just praying, prayer transforms the world. And I hope you really believe that. I've got a friend of mine who um, prays for many, many Christian workers uh, across the UK and beyond. And he's got such a huge prayer list that somebody has to die before he takes somebody new on. And I went to visit him about 10 years ago just to see him in his house in the southwest of England. Uh, an incredible man who's planted churches and has <coughs> been the cause of lots of folk coming to know Christ. And he just happened to say to me, by the way, I've got space on my prayer list. Would you like to be on it? And I said, yes, please. Now, I, I, I knew what a serious thing that was because I'd texted and said, I'd love to come and see you when I'm next down in, in the kind of uh, Bristol area. And he gave me a time slot because he's got people like me who arrive all day long for him to pray with them and to share their burdens. And he, he prays for them. Now that he's an elderly man, he's no longer church planting. He's, he's too old for that. Well, I don't think he is, but he says he's too old for that. So his ministry is praying for people. And 10 years ago, my wife and I went onto his prayer list. And every month, I get an email that says, okay, for next month, what are your prayer requests? And every day, every day, I know he's praying for me. So I let him know about the weekend I took last weekend. I let him know about coming here as well. And by the way, he knows about Regent. Don't know why, but he knows about Regent. Um, I was in Marseille a couple of weekends ago. He prayed for that. I'll be in Marseille again doing a church weekend. Next month, he'll be praying for that too. You might never go to somewhere like France or Italy or some of the other locations where glow workers are or um, uh, countries around the world where, where, where lots of other missionaries from lots of other mission societies go and work, but you can protect them and support them and uphold them with your prayers. And people like Andy and Claire will tell you that without folk praying for you, you are vulnerable, utterly vulnerable. And maybe that's what God is calling you to do. Your, your job in world mission is to be serious about praying for people and thinking about where God is at work and trying to uphold people in prayer. It might also be that uh, your job might be to become a, a, a giver, a, a donor. Um, we are hugely blessed and glowed by some um, whole range of people actually whose generosity makes mission happen. Mission's an expensive business. It's a really expensive business. Um, when we had our meetings a, a couple of weeks ago in Marseille, it's one of the churches that Globe planted a few years ago, and now they're doing two church plants, one of which is a cafe church, but it's in the very center of the city, and just buying that premises and then cutting it out to be used as a, as a, as a, as a cafe, it's called Boule de Cafe, cost a fortune. Christians committed to giving and uh, sacrificing for the sake of the gospel made it happen. Uh, and by the way, it's, it's not always wealthy folk who are so generous. I was telling the, the young folk at the weekend that took um, last weekend um, that when I first decided to go into Christian ministry, I went to Bible college first of all. Um, 
my church didn't approve of Bible college, so I got committed straight into Christian ministry, even though I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, but it was their way of uh, being able to send me to Bible college without me actually going to Bible college. But I thought, how will I be able to afford going to Bible college? I've got no money, none at all. And it's expensive. Three years of, of, of studying theology costs a fortune. And there's a wee lady in my church who I hardly knew. Now, she always came out of the church, but she's got a, a, a shy little lady uh, and quite stooped as well. She couldn't always make it because of her health. And she said to me one Sunday morning, can you come and see me? I've been praying for you. So I went around to see her, and I, I was gobsmacked by the simplicity of her lifestyle. She lived in a small council house, very small council house, but actually she had moved all her stuff, including her bed, into one room so that she only had to pay to heat one room. And she even did her cooking in that one room. And she only had one meal a day. And so I thought, she must be in desperate poverty to live in these awful conditions. I mean, the place is sparklingly clean, of course, but I thought, that, that, that's real austerity. And she asked me lots of questions about what I'm going to be studying and what my hopes were for the future, etc., etc. And I didn't really know what God wanted to do with my life, so I said, I, I really don't know. But I do believe the Bible called is the next step. And then she said, well, I'll, I'll keep praying for you, but I want to give you something. And she reached her hand behind a cushion in her tiny wee settee and pulled out a big, fat wad of cash and gave it to me. Now, I don't know why it was in cash. Maybe she didn't have a bank account. Who knows? But it was the equivalent of about two years, two years of study and digs. That's a lot of money. And I said to her, I can't possibly take this off you. I feel really bad about this. And she looked at me and said, don't you dare refuse. And I'll never forget what she said next. She said, if you ever make anything of your life, I share in your ministry. That was a magnificent thing to say. I've never forgotten that. And my first two years of Bible college were funded by that lady who, for all intents and purposes, seemed to have nothing at all in this world. But she funded me and got me started. And, and across the world, mission is being funded often by people who have so little, but they're willing to sacrificially give. It might be that you become a mission champion, not just somebody who, who advocates for a mission, just enthuses and encourages other people. Um, one of my friends who does this is disabled. And because of their disability, his disability, he can't go anywhere any longer. But he keeps on nabbing people and saying, you should be doing a GLOW team here or an OM team there or I've just seen this YWAM team happening and that would be great for you. And he encourages people to pray about mission and he reminds people about different missions. Can you please pray about this? He'll phone people up. I just heard that there's a, a, a great uh, um, event taking place in, in this city in the world. Can, can you make sure you pray about that? people who just advocate for mission, that might be your role. And you might stay here in region for the rest of your life. Rest of your life. You might never leave this congregation. And yet you could be the, the cause of many other people doing teams, going to college, becoming committed to, to witnessing to their friends, their neighbors, because 
you have got that fire in your belly where you believe, I've got a role to play here to be a, a, a real mission champion. Now, whatever your role is, and, and your role might just be going. Giving up your job. Uh, in some cases, living by faith like Andy and Claire did. In other cases, um, another friend of mine uh, just got a transfer. He's an academic. He works for a university in this country. And he got a job in a university over in France. And he does his lecturing there like he did lecturing here. But he went there because he wanted to be a witness to French students who had never come across a Christian. And wanted to help in his spare time in a little church that was really struggling and needed his help. So he just got a job transfer. Fantastic. Doesn't matter how it's done. But across the world, we have the most enormous needs, and we need to have that sense of passion that, that, that Christ has called all of us, all of us, to be his witnesses as a collective. And we need to ask, where and how can God use me so that the world can hear about Jesus? And I want to finish with one other verse that I've always found striking. It's what Paul says in Romans 15 and verse 20. I'll just read it to you. Paul in the book of Romans chapter 15, he looks back over his career as undoubtedly the most successful and strategic missionary of the early church era. And he says, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard rather than where the church was already started by somebody else. <coughs> what, what Paul was saying is we need to be, as a whole collective, deeply strategic and ask where are the key needs. And I'm, I'm so glad that Andy mentioned Cramlington. It, it may well be that for some of you, God might burden you to help out because Andy's driven me around Cramlington. The lack of spiritual life is, you can almost taste it in the air. It's so needy. Think of lives that could be transformed if you decided to move there and just talk to people about Jesus. Just be his witness in that area. Maybe get a job there just to be his witness. That was, that was Paul. Let's be really, let's think strategically, let's, let's pray strategically. And that's, by the way, why, why GLOW does continue to focus on Europe, because Europe is a lost place. We, we in this country, we in Europe, we are living in one of the most dark parts of the globe. I kid you not, it's so dark here. We had a student came to us uh, from Africa a few years ago, uh, five, six years ago, and after spending just six weeks in Scotland, he said to me, I don't know how any Christian could ever live here. Coming from Africa. But then in the country where he comes from, about 40% of the population are born again believers. They have traffic jams on a Sunday because so many folk want to go to church. And nobody gets made fun of when they say I'm a Christian. Because Christianity has such credibility Europe is a truly, truly dark place. I, I give God thanks that uh, I grew up in Africa, and I also give God thanks that uh, Africa is alive with the gospel. And if you were to get all the evangelical Christians in Europe together, and then all the evangelicals in Africa together, this group are 10 times the size of this group. 
Can you believe that? African evangelicals outnumber European evangelicals by 10 to 1. And Ethiopia isn't the only country in Africa that has more evangelicals than all of Europe put together. We live in a very dark place. And the further east you go, the darker it becomes. We've got a couple who have recently got involved with the work of GLOW, and they're from a country called Slovenia. Now, you can fly to Slovenia in about three hours. No far away. And it's a beautiful place. Stunning country, actually. You would be more likely to find a Christian walking through the streets of the capital of Saudi Arabia or walking through Tehran than you would be walking through Slovenia. It's that dark. I was in Albania about this time last year. And uh, I was in the north in a place called Skodra. And the missionary I was with, we went on, on a hill walk. And, and from that, that hill, you can look out over Kosovo and uh, North Macedonia and Montenegro. Three countries you could actually see. From where I was standing, you could, you could see those three countries. Uh, if you were to choose the 10 most unreached countries on the face of the earth, all three of those would be in that list. All three and towards the very top. And I met a guy in Skodra who comes to, we run a wee Bible school, and he comes for training. And he's from Kosovo. And he's in a town that isn't all that big. It's only 20, 30,000 people. And his church is the only church, the only one there. And he's the only leader in his church. He's all alone. But then his church only has... 12 members. And so he comes over to Albania for a bit of fellowship. And I said to him, outside of your church, if you take not just your town, but your wider region, what other churches exist? He said, I don't really know. Haven't come across any. Have you ever come across another Christian in your town? No, just the, the dozen of us. And they meet in his living room. And that's it. That is it. So dark, so needy. And you could fly there in three hours, quite easily. I, I hope one day to have a summer team there in, in Kosovo and North Macedonia, Montenegro. Some of the most unreached areas on the face of the earth are right here in our continent. And I'll encourage you, whatever your gift is, whatever God has uh, equipped you to do, just take a burden for the whole world, but also be strategic in your prayer life, in your giving, in your support and your encouragement of missionaries, in your, your, your advocating of mission, being a mission champion. And ask God, God, burden me for, for, for areas of deep and profound need and, and help me, whether it's just through prayer or through whatever else, help me to be part of the way in which you reach into these darkest and most bleak of places and be a witness and bring the good news of Jesus. If you are a Christian, you know that Christ can change. Mission is so exciting, but it's also so needed. It's so desperately needed, and we're all called. Now, you might never leave this congregation for the rest of your life, that's fine. But we are all called to be witnesses. Here, the wider region, 
areas where it's beyond our comfort zone and to the very ends of the earth. And the only question we need to answer is, what's my particular role here? We're all called. All of us are called. But what is my particular role? Let me just pray. Then I'll hand back to our chairman. Father, thank you that the gospel is good news. And each of us as Christians have been transformed. We've been forgiven. We're ready for heaven. We're going there. But there are so many people in this world who know nothing about this, just nothing. And we're called to be witnesses. And I pray you'll give each of us a burden for the world. Starting right now on our doorstep, have we spoken to people in our street? People that we work with? People we play football with? We have to start where we are now, but we're called to be witnesses to the whole world. Just burden us, we pray. And may we seek your face as we ask, what is my role in Jesus' great mission adventure? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.